you know, you, you need to be able to speak fluently in the policy realm and the regulatory realm, not just in the business realm when it comes to selling to utilities. Also, I would say the definition of grid is more fluid now than it ever was before. Um, in many ways, we used to think about the grid as ending at the meter and then whatever happened inside of the building um, was you know, uh, your own business as a, as a customer. Today, you've got rooftop solar, you've got electric vehicles, you've got appliances that can communicate, uh, heat pumps everywhere. Um, you, know, you said before electric utilities you know, were the buyers. I would actually challenge that, Silas. I think uh, you know, the policies that are you know, now, now in place are really incentivizing things that are more behind the meter than in front of the meter. The grid, as we think about, uh, really needs to start becoming more interconnected with the things that are behind the meter. Uh, and that's going to be a profound shift. Uh, consumers are going to be part of the grid and the grid is going to be, um, uh, you know, the meter isn't going to matter as much uh, because it's all one system. Welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview climate tech founders and VCs to discuss all things building and investing to solve the biggest challenge of our generation, climate change. Today, we had the opportunity to speak with Michael Jung, the founding partner of ICF Climate Center. This one is quite interesting because Mike has an incredible exposure directly and through the other ICF consultants with many different agencies and corporates throughout the climate tech and energy transition space. So he offered a lot of insights. In particular, he was able to offer some really fascinating insights on how to approach, sell to, and work with utilities as a startup. Overall, it's a really great episode because Mike is filled with wisdom. Enjoy this episode, have a listen, and let us know what you think. All right. Welcome to the show, Michael. How's it going today? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you, Silas? I am fine as frog hair. I'm excited to talk to you. I've, I've followed you on LinkedIn for a bit now, and I'm quite excited to, to hear what you have to say. So uh, let's let's get into things, right? Tell us a little bit about who you are, You know what your background is, and, and uh, you know what you're doing today. Great. Uh, my name is Mike Jung. Um, everyone knows a Mike or a Michael, so whatever comes out easier for you works for me. Uh, I uh, currently serve in the capacity of the executive director of the ICF Climate Center. Uh, ICF is probably best known for being a, a consultancy. We have 9,000 some odd people scattered in about 80 offices around the world. Um, most of our work is uh, uh, focused on energy and climate, that intersection uh, uh, between the two. Um, but we also are active in the areas of healthcare. Um, you know, we basically help governments uh, and, and, and companies and nonprofits and community organizations do what they do, but do it better. Uh, I live in Portland, Oregon, uh, so I'm uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And um, the climate center that I lead is sort of like a think tank within the consultancy. Uh, you know, we're client facing as consultants by and large, uh, but um, my job is to uh, serve as sort of an internal client uh, to ask the questions that our clients aren't yet asking. And because climate is such an interdisciplinary and, uh, and multifaceted issue, uh, I get to turn around and uh, deliver the findings from the research that I commission and give it away for free to the public to advance the overall state of climate knowledge. Interesting. So before we get too far into the weeds, I'm, I am kind of curious, how do you how do you determine what is interesting to like what's not being asked, right? How do you find that out? Like how, you know, I asked before we started, you know, are there any questions that I'm you know, missing? So this is, seems like it's your forte. Right, right. Well, you know, the way it looks from uh, the inside at ICF is that um, we have clients, uh, you know, from all over the world, uh, all, all over our, all different parts of our society. Um, and they, they, they come to us with questions that they don't know the answers to, uh, because we build the models, we run the numbers, we conduct the analysis that uh, uh, results in a deliverable. And uh, when we turn it around and give it to, to those clients, it's usually because they've asked a question that's sort of like, um, you know, to, 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 to be a little tongue in cheek, you know, we have clients that ask us, this feels like a tail. Another client will be like, is this a tusk? And another client might be like, I think this is an ear. We're the only ones that see all the questions that our clients are asking us because they're not aware of each other's. And that puts us in a unique position to come out and say, let us describe for you an elephant. We have this line of sight that no one else has. Additionally, ICF is unique in that we have this amazing collection of atmospheric scientists and engineers and economists. And, uh, and uh, you know, we have so many different disciplines uh, in our subject matter expertise uh, tool set that um, we can tackle problems from uh, angles that very few other organizations have that capacity uh, to tackle. Um, and so we have this uh, um, ability to be multifaceted and interdisciplinary, which is exactly what the climate challenge requires uh, in terms of a thinking uh, uh, perspective. So mm -hmm. um, this is something that, you know, 
uh, clients will often ask us fairly narrow questions. Uh, we wanted to weave these together and turn it around and give it to the public in the form of, uh, you know, thought leadership. Interesting. Yeah, no, I think that that is quite fascinating. It is definitely uh, multidisciplinary and it requires a lot of a lot of angles. Right. So that's why part of the reason why we started the show. So I think that's interesting. I, you know, you have a really interesting background into you know how you ended up in this role. So I'd be curious, could you kind of give us a um, just a bit of a breakdown of the main areas that you worked in so I can understand kind of the full scope of your background and the, the different kind of different lenses that you look at things through? Sure. That's a, a, an interesting question because it actually brings me back, uh, you know, to an article I read as a high school student that began one fifth of humanity was disappointed today. And I read that sentence over and over and I was a Boy Scout uh, and I thought to myself, I feel like I'm supposed to leave these, this campground, in this case, planet Earth, cleaner than it was when I got here. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but if I can do some small thing for one fifth of humanity, that would be awesome. That article was in response to the International Olympic Committee awarding the 2000 Games to Sydney instead of Beijing. Uh, and I thought, all right, let's, let's learn about China. What are the big problems facing China? Uh, I started reading up and found that some, you know, depending on how you did the math, you know, seven, eight, nine percent of GDP in China was being lost every year to environmental degradation. And I thought, holy cow, that's 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 a gigantic problem. Uh, what's causing that? And you start drilling down and you realize a lot of it's energy, uh, energy related. Um, and when you start breaking down what's energy, what's driving these energy decisions, um, you know, the biggest two biggest chunks are power and transportation. So, uh, so I spent my undergraduate years learning Mandarin uh, and uh, learning everything I could about transportation infrastructure and its energy impacts and environmental consequences in China. Um, and, uh, and, and that was a fascinating uh, time when I reached this conclusion, which sounded crazy to a lot of people at the time, that China was going to become a net oil importer uh, before we knew it. Um, I was off in my projections. It actually happened sooner uh, than I thought it would. And uh, um, having spent a ton of time with Chinese state statistics, which require a lot of massaging to figure out what the truth is, um, I decided I would turn my attention to electric power uh, because electric power is by and large done the same everywhere around the world. Um, and, uh, and it's pretty well understood. So uh, I've been working uh, in electric power for a long time. I started my career at American Electric Power, uh, trying to clean up at that time the largest consumer of coal in the Western Hemisphere, um, uh, uh, trying to clean them up from the inside. I found some alignment with some other Boy Scouts uh, that were parts of the organization, including the Vice President for Environmental Policy, the CEO uh, at the time, and one of the uh, leading members of the Board of Directors. Um, we uh, brought AEP to, uh, you know, out of the Global Climate Coalition, the Just Say No crowd, uh, and, uh, and started them down the path that ultimately has resulted in uh, a major transformation. AEP today is very different from the AEP that I joined. I would argue that the campground is quite a bit cleaner than it was when I got there. Impact brands represent the choice to live our lives in alignment with planetary action and our values, to preserve our amazing home for generations to come. Be it through solar panels, how you travel, where you're sourcing your materials, the choices we make matter. And I know you know that if you're listening to this podcast. My name is Anna Constantinova, and I'm on a mission to make impact brands our next paradigm. I believe that marketing can be used for us rather than against us, and I want to help you build the best brand possible so we can all pour our strength into solving the biggest issue of our time. Whether you're a founder or an investor representing portfolio companies, let's work together to make sure your brand is seen, heard, and remembered the way it deserves to be. And as a thank you to the Clean Techies community, I'm offering 20% off my newest launch, Branding Sessions, with code CLEANTECHIES, one word. We'll take 60 or 90 minutes to solve one specific problem, whether it be a naming issue, strategy development, business growth, or beyond. Let's put our minds together and move forward with renewed energy. Can't wait to hear what you're working on. Find me at anaco.co. That's A-N-N-A-K-O dot C-O. Talk soon. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, there's there's a lot of things you've done, man, as I look at, you know, at your LinkedIn as we're talking. I guess, you know, one thing I am curious about is, well, maybe let's first go here. So, you know, how did you end up getting the opportunity? And then why did you accept the opportunity to join ICF in this role? ICF was actually the very first job that I was really excited about. Um, I had an opportunity uh, before me to join a team that was going to help, uh, you know, turn green lights into Energy Star, uh, which is, uh, uh, um, you know, an indicator of how long I've been at this. 
Um, these were early days in, 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 the, in the mid 1990s. And um, it would have required me to move to Washington, D.C. It was the perfect job for everything I wanted to do. But my girlfriend at the time was about to start her medical school uh, uh, career. Um, and I knew very well that as soon as she figured out how much better she could do, um, uh, I was in trouble. So um, uh, I decided to pass up the opportunity to take the dream job at ICF and instead stuck around and joined American Electric Power. Um, it worked out well in hindsight. Uh, that girlfriend is now uh, my wife and the mother of our three children. Um, but it did mean that I had this unrequited professional love. ICF was the one that got away. And so when the opportunity came up for uh, me to uh, uh, join ICF, in the capacity of the executive director to help start the climate center, really, um, I, I, you know, I was able to come full circle. It's been uh, a real, real, real privilege and a pleasure. Yeah, that's actually great. I'm glad I asked these in reverse order because my, my next question is going to be um, early on in your career. What was, you know, what were some of the, I guess you could say challenges, like how did you navigate that? Because I think especially there's a lot of young people who listen to this and, you know, people are early in their career or, you know, midway through their career. And, and I come across a lot of people who are just uncertain on the, the ups and downs of things. And, you know, you wanted to go to ICF and then way, way later on you went to ICF, right? So like, can you just talk about the challenges and maybe any, any kind of general career advice for people um, as they're kind of focusing on working in climate? Sure, Silas. That's a great question. You know, I think, um, there are I, I talk with a lot of uh, young people every you know every day I get I get an incoming request from someone I think it's because I've used the open door uh, climate hashtag on my LinkedIn profile um, people with questions like this and and I have to tell them that don't think too hard um, every campground could use some cleaning up no matter where you start um, no matter what part of this economy you're a part of um, there is work that can be done on the climate challenge on the energy transition. Um, so it doesn't really matter so much where you start, um, and it doesn't have necessarily a determining impact on where you're going to end up. And anyone who's told you that they had a master plan and that it followed, they followed it according to script uh, is probably lying to you, uh, because the world in 20 years is going to look different in ways that we could not possibly predict today. Um, this energy transition is happening. Um, uh, yeah, the climate challenges that we're facing are rewriting the script. So um, don't sweat the details. Just start. Roll up your sleeves. Get in wherever you can. Uh, I encourage people to take up public service uh, as a consideration. Um, you know, uh, advice I got from a professor once was, listen, they're not going to pay you what you deserve, but they're also going to give you more responsibility than you're ready for. So what a great opportunity to learn, to become useful, uh, to build up a base of knowledge and build up a network of relationships early in your career. Public service, I think, is a fantastic place to start, whether it's a legislature or a utility commission uh, or working for uh, you know, uh, any public official. Um, I encourage people because I think that's often overlooked. Uh, a lot of folks kind of want to start as like, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, you know uh, uh, the boss of something. Uh, but, you know, maybe the best place to start is uh, to be the guy that, or gal that writes the first draft instead. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's actually really interesting. So this is something I've I've tried to tell people that I bump into a lot is that they all want to, you know, get to uh, an in-house sustainability consulting role at a at a REIT or a corporate or something, right? They want they all want to work at Meta. But I, I, I like to tell people that you're basically putting yourself in as a very small fish in a very large pond of people, right, who are looking or an ocean in, this, in some cases that are looking to get that job. But you can make an impact. Yeah, I know you don't feel like it's a big impact, but you can make a bigger impact in many cases by being the one person at your conventional industry or wherever you're working that, that focuses on, on making things sustainable. And you can show that you took the initiative rather than you know being in the job. Yeah, you may not have mentors in-house. You can find them elsewhere. But you know, consider the, the pool that you're looking to, to put yourself in and, and where the impact's really made. Because if everybody's trying to get the same job, at the end, there's going to be nobody else left at the other companies to do the job, right? To, to make an impact on sustainability. Hey there, are you building a climate tech business and looking for very specialized talent? Consider reaching out to our sponsors, NextWave Partners. NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change yourself, feel free to reach out to NextWave at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. I agree 100%, Silas. And I really do believe it's about how much and how quickly can you learn. Um, you know, to be really blunt about it, no one has the answers. We have direction. We have an idea. We have a hunch. 
but no one's got the answers. And we're going to have to invent a lot of the, the, the details of the solutions that we're going to need. And so, um, you, you know, beginning one's career and focusing on learning, on, you know, absorbing, um, I think that's probably a better metric than, you know, what's the actual impact uh, that you've had early on. Um, impact uh, will come as you've learned more, you'll be, you know, you'll, you'll have opportunities uh, that bring longer levers. Uh, and so I'd say don't sweat the impact early on, really focus on the learning. Yeah, that is quite interesting. I think, um, I think a lot of people can, can take from that. So I appreciate you sharing that. That's, that's good. So I, you know, you mentioned it a little earlier, but I do want to get a little bit more in depth in terms of what ICF it, the climate center is doing. I know there's this kind of running joke about, you know, what do consultants actually do, right? Uh, besides make PowerPoints. But so I would like to, could you kind of like dumb this down for us? Like, what are the main things you do? Who do you work with? What are the specialties? And, you know, what's the thesis behind supporting this area? Yeah. Um, well, let me begin by saying ICF um, is a consultancy, but we are not your average consultants. Um, it's worth uh, sharing the story of why ICF, how ICF got started and why ICF exists in the first place, uh, which is that in the late 1960s, um, a couple of defense department analysts uh, working in the whiz kid days, sort of the, the, the Robert McNamara days, um, you know, the best and brightest were drawn to uh, the defense department back in that era. Um, they got together. Um, they were led by uh, a former World War II Air Force uh, ace, uh, Tuskegee Airman. Uh, that was the Black Air Force Squadron. Uh, his name was Lucky Lester. He was lucky. I think he flew some 90-odd missions and never got shot down. Um, uh, and, uh, and they got together and they said, let's, let's tackle the hardest problem that we see before us. Um, and at that time in Washington, D.C., like many parts of the country, urban renewal uh, was really kind of destroying mom and pop businesses in inner city uh, um, uh, areas. And so they said, well, let's, you know, inject some capital resources. Uh, and they also found uh, that the consulting advice that they gave to these small businesses uh, was maybe even more impactful um, into these inner city businesses. Um, today, we would call it social venture investing or social uh, uh, social impact investing. Um, and uh, they called it the inner city fund. That's what ICF stands for, literally as letters, inner city fund, but also uh, in terms of, you know, uh, the meaning, the purpose of ICF, which was let's tackle the hardest problems we see. Let's find the places where we can make the biggest impact. Uh, let's uh, apply the smarts that we have uh, to solve the problems that need to be addressed. And since then, ICF has gone on. Uh, we helped, uh, you know, we were there when the Department of Energy uh, was first getting up and running. Uh, we helped the United States Environmental Protection Agency do the first sea level change analysis ever. Uh, we've been doing climate and energy since there was climate and energy work to do. Consulting really involves um, when agencies uh, or, or, or companies or nonprofits have a problem that they just don't know the answer to or have a program that they need help implementing. Um, they come to companies like ICF uh, because oftentimes we have specific subject matter expertise uh, that it just doesn't make sense for uh, agencies or companies to keep in-house. Um, uh, I mentioned before, you know, we've got atmospheric scientists and, uh, and, and computer modelers and, uh, and, and, you know, engineers and uh, economists and whatnot. Um, you know, we've got very specific sets of skills uh, that, um, you know, scale as consultancies, but wouldn't make sense within agencies or companies. Um, they ask us questions. Uh, we build models. We run numbers. We conduct analysis. We crunch the numbers and, uh, and, and we give them back uh, our best, uh, you know, estimation of what the answer is that they're asking, that they're looking for. Um, it's a mm -hmm. relationship. Um, it's, you know, it ends in a deliverable, but really oftentimes it's a relationship. Our clients have, we've been working, uh, we've done, you know, the national climate assessment supported the, the, this is like the U.S. scaled down version of the intergovernmental uh, IPCC uh, uh, report. We've done that, um, you know, program for, you know, uh, years and years and years. Uh, this, uh, the fifth assessment is about to come out. These happen every five years. So um, these are long-term relationships in many cases. Uh, these are um, not transactional. Sometimes they are, but oftentimes I think the best ones are uh, examples of projects that, um, you know, live on and, 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 and programs like Energy Star that have fundamentally transformed the way we think about energy appliances, uh, you know, our role as, as consumers and participants in this moment. Hey there, thanks for listening to this episode. If you made it this far, it's likely that you're enjoying the show, so I wanted to ask your help. 
If you're enjoying it, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share with somebody in the same industry who might find this interesting. And if you're interested in getting summaries of these episodes, go subscribe to our newsletter that comes out on LinkedIn and Substack. Links can be found in the description. Thanks for your help in growing the reach of this show. Yeah, this is this is good. I mean, it's it's, it's really nice to see, I guess, um, some examples of, of how places like ICF are behind some really big kind of changes and they, they, they are there helping make sure these things happen, right. To, to a large extent, uh, this is maybe slightly off of the, the topic, but I am really curious to get your thoughts perhaps on the, as a consultant, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, he, people asking, you know, is this a part of an elephant, but they don't know it's an elephant, right. And then you can put the pieces together. So from the perspective of taking in a lot of information across a wide spectrum of things, how does a consultancy beyond just you know consulting fees on projects take this broader set of information and data that they're learning from and actually monetize it right and especially kind of curious to hear if you want to share any examples of some of the reports you guys have done or things regarding climate but i also want to know from a kind of commercial perspective how you take that and you maximize it because there's a lot of info right some of the some of the biggest businesses in the in the history of of you know business have been uh, information based that's a good question um i will you know i will share first that you know my role at icf is leading the think tank within the consultancy so i'm not an expert uh, on you know what the world looks like for our consultants um but i am uh, you know i work with them every day so i can uh, uh, share a little bit about what it looks like from my perspective um the you know the thing that i think makes icf unique and then i'll talk about sort of the generalities within the consulting world perhaps um first is that ICF is, you know, we're a publicly traded company. Um, you know, we're listed on stock exchange. Um, so we have all the rigor, all of the discipline, all of the urgency of a private corporation. Um, you know, we, we're, we're, we're a for-profit entity. Um, at the same time, that's combined with all of the mission, all of the purpose, all of the values uh, that, you know, I shared when I talked about the founding and the origin story of ICF. All of that kind of purpose and mission of a nonprofit. Uh, and, and married together, uh, I think that's what you end up with with ICF. Um, that, I think, sets it apart from uh, a lot of the sort of, you know, the management consultants and sort of the hired guns uh, that you'll have out there. Um, there are a lot of consultancies out there that, you know, they're just trying to figure out, you know, how do I fire people and blame someone else for it? Oh, the consultant told us to do it. Um, how do I cut costs? How do I you know, squeeze more profit out of this product? Um, that's not what ICF is about. Um, our job really, as we see it, is to help agencies help companies um you know accomplish a worthy goal uh, but do it uh, faster or do it better or do it cheaper um but it's you know towards some higher purpose um a lot of it is pretty technical uh, icf is um uh, you know we're we're a bunch of quant jocks uh, we're a bunch of scientists and mathematicians in many ways um you know uh, the montreal protocol uh, which was the ozone layer uh, 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 agreement uh, to address ozone layer depletion uh, in the 80s um you know we were brought on by the United States Environmental Protection Agency uh, to, to, to organize and, uh, and put together the technical analysis uh, that underpinned uh, uh, the actions that we took at a policy level uh, to, to fix the ozone hole. Um, that has since grown uh, uh, the Crivelli Amendment, recognizing that the ozone hole is part of the biosphere that ultimately is part of the climate system. Uh, and so, um, you know, we are we, we fill a lot of technical gaps uh, that, uh, that the governments uh, you know, need uh, to do the work that they do. Um, when it comes to commercial clients, a lot of times they, you know, have this directional sense of we want to do the right thing when it comes to environmental and social uh, government, ESG. Um, but, you know, we don't know how to do that. Well, we've been doing the national, you know, uh, uh, car, uh, greenhouse gas inventory uh, since the beginning. And so we know better than almost anyone else how to do the carbon accounting. And so what we've done for the United States has built up a skill set that is very transferable to corporate entities that are trying to reduce their own greenhouse gas emissions, for example, and improve their own ESG performance in any number of other ways. So um, that, that's a couple of examples of, you know, uh, how we do what we do, why we do what we do, and, uh, and, and how it all fits together. Mm -hmm. Hey there. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you made it this far, it's likely that you're enjoying the show. So I wanted to ask your help. If you're enjoying it, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share with somebody in the same industry who might find this interesting. And if you're interested in getting summaries of these episodes, go subscribe to our newsletter that comes out on LinkedIn and Substack. Links can be found in the description. Thanks for your help in growing the reach of this show. Yeah, that's that's, pretty, that's great. I think, you know, I'd like to move on a little bit to, to insights because, uh, you know, I don't want to 
I'm realizing that the, the, the main probably value you, you, you can really bring to us, especially is going to be inside this. So I want to talk in particular about when, let me just see which one I want to go through first. I, I'm kind of interested in the utilities topic. So on the topic of, of utilities, you know, how are they approaching climate change? You know, a lot of utilities, people say, oh, they're not, they're not motivated because they don't have an incentive to change and, and focus on climate. Can you talk about what they're doing? Is it just focused on renewables? How many are interested? You know, what are the things that are on the table, challenges, opportunities, et cetera? Just kind of give us a lowdown on what you're seeing there. Utilities are going to play a critical part in this energy transition. By and large, we're going to have to electrify, uh, you know, almost everything that we can, you know, readily. Uh, and then we're going to have to figure out what to do with the rest. And electrification largely is going to happen on utility infrastructure. Um, it's difficult to offer a generality around what utilities are doing uh, because they're all moving at different speeds. We have some 3,000 odd utilities in America. Um, you know, there's about 100 big, you know, investor-owned utilities that are sizable and serve, you know, uh, uh, millions of customers. Um, and then we have uh, this amazing patchwork of, you know, municipally owned and cooperatively owned utilities that serve much of rural America. So there's no kind of one way, one answer for what are utilities doing when it comes to the energy transition and the climate challenge. That said, um, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act have set into motion a ton of programs that really uh, provide powerful incentives for uh, utilities, large and small, rural and urban, um, to accelerate uh, their participation in the energy transition. Um, we're going to have to, you know, rebuild this grid that uh, delivers electric, electric power around the country. Um, from the top to bottom, uh, we're going to have to do it a couple of times over. We're going to need a couple of grids worth of infrastructure uh, to do the electrification uh, that, that that's going to be necessary to reduce our carbon footprint. Um, the first time we rebuild the grid, we're just going to have to rebuild it because it's old. A lot of that infrastructure dates back to the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and so it's just, you know, reached its expiration date. Uh, and we're going to have to rebuild that part of, the, you know, that grid just to keep the lights on uh, for business as usual. And then we're going to have to build another grid on top of that uh, because population grows, uh, economy grows, um, you know, just growth. Uh, we're going to need a second grid's worth of infrastructure. Uh, and then we're going to have to electrify transportation. Uh, and that's easily at least another half grid, maybe a full grid, depending on how we do it, how smart we are about it. Uh, and then there's industry uh, that we're going to have to, uh, uh, to electrify as well, as much as we can. And so pretty soon you're looking at 3Xing, 4Xing, uh, and you start talking about like, you know, carbon extraction, uh, maybe even 5Xing the grid. Um, I hope that we can use, you know, smarter technologies and, uh, and, 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 and modern uh, tools uh, to, to reduce that. I think energy efficiency is going to be a huge part of reducing how much more grid we're going to need. Uh, and we're going to have to become a lot more sophisticated about energy efficiency. It's not just wearing a sweater anymore. Uh, it becomes behavioral and dynamic as opposed to static. Um, but, uh, but electric utilities are going to be without a doubt, um, you know, at the center of attention when it comes to how we get this done. Mm -hmm. So what about for the companies? Because, you know, we talk about utilities need to be the buyers and implementers of this technology, but they're probably not going to be the ones inventing it. So if you're a startup who's selling to utilities, I know that I've talked to a lot of investors who say, hey, we, if you're selling to utilities, we're not interested because it's too hard, right? So could you talk about any insights for founders on selling to utilities or building their products with the utilities in mind? Just any tips there to get that adoption and be on the same page as them? Because in many cases, they're probably speaking different languages. It's a great question, Silas. Um, I spent uh, a decade of my life or, or so with um, uh, companies that you know, sold to utilities. Um, and you're right, it's a tough nut to crack. Not because utilities are, you know, uh, um, you know, have any ill intent. Um, a lot of it is because utilities can only buy what their regulators allow them to pay for. And there's this thing we talk about, the regulatory compact, which is basically this deal where um, utilities have this obligation to serve, a requirement that they serve every customer in a given service territory, a geographic footprint. And in exchange, um, they are given a monopoly uh, over uh, uh, delivering power in those areas. This is because it just made more sense to have these regulated monopolies um, than to have every house connected to five or six different sets of wires uh, and try to compete in electric power delivery. Just you know, kind of crazy at the time. So it, this regulatory compact in turn means that utility regulators who are government officials um, have a responsibility to regulate the prices so that these monopolies can't just get away with charging whatever they feel like. So there's a lot of oversight. Uh, it requires a lot of care, caution, and transparency. 
And as a result, utilities and their regulators um, are very good at keeping the lights on, of at keeping you know the status quo. Uh, it involves minimizing risk um, and uh, and keeping prices affordable. That's how that system got started. Um, now, if you're a startup and you're coming in and saying, "Hey, I've got this brand new thing. It's going to change everything. It's going to you know reinvent your business." Um, that's the last thing a regulator wants to hear. That's the last thing utility wants to buy. Um, their job is to minimize disruption, not to embrace it. So my experience has been that, um, you know, you, you need to be able to speak fluently in the policy realm and the regulatory realm, not just in the business realm when it comes to selling to utilities. Um, having a very effective policy shop that, uh, you know, uh, uh, works the regulatory affairs channel, works the government affairs channel um, is right up there with having a great you know, sales team. Um, also, I would say the definition of grid is more fluid now than it ever was before. Um, in many ways, we used to think about the grid as ending at the meter, and then whatever happened inside of the building um, was, you know, uh, your own business as a as a customer. Today, you've got rooftop solar, you've got electric vehicles, you've got appliances that can communicate, uh, heat pumps everywhere. Um, you know, you said before electric utilities, you know, were the buyers. I would actually challenge that, Silas. I think uh, you know the policies that are you know now now in place are really incentivizing things that are more behind the meter than in front of the meter. Um, there were some. $60 billion for infrastructure in the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, but the Inflation Reduction Act puts in hundreds of billions of dollars to incentivize, uh, you know, the things that I just described, EVs and heat pumps and whatnot. So the grid, as we think about, uh, really needs to start becoming more interconnected with the things that are behind the meter. Uh, and that's going to be a profound shift. Uh, consumers are going to be part of the grid and the grid is going to be, um, uh, you know, the meter isn't going to matter as much uh, because it's all one system. So then is the actual buyer, if it's not the utility, then are these, should these, you know, technology providers, because obviously they're, they're competing from, you know, their technology. They want it to be novel. They're not probably going to partner with other related technology or not other one-to-one -one technologies or similar. They're going to maybe partner with different that also need to sell to utilities. But is there a way that you see that startups could, with this regulatory lens, try to basically get in and just prove the technology in some way to basically, I, I never liked this, but to essentially mandate the, the purchase of such technology. You know, who, who should they be targeting as the, the person they need to sell, right? Who do they need to convince? Yeah, who, who, who's buying? Um, I, I would say, you know, as a policy wonk, and that's my professional training, uh, you know, my, my, my degrees in, in public policy, that picking winners and losers is, uh, usually does not end well when it comes to uh, uh, legislation or, or, or regulation. Um, but really focusing on the outcomes uh, that you're trying to, to, to generate um, tends to work better. And that encourages innovation and encourages competition. Um, if, you're, if, you know, if you're a founder, um, if you've got a, a, an innovation that you're trying to bring out to this world, you should be confident, right? Like you've invented something, uh, you're, you, you've discovered something that's going to be powerful. You think it's going to win. And so um, I think uh, the best advice I could give is identify the metric, figure out the outcome that is measurable, that your product, your service uh, can deliver, you think, better than anyone else. And try to get that uh, into the rules. Um, and, uh, you know, rather than pick winner and losers, uh, pick the outcome that you think, uh, you know, makes the best sense for the system and for your product. Um, the, the, the buyer is in many cases, a, a regulator, uh, who, you know, is the one that decides whether or not the utility can buy it, um, or pay for it. Um, in some cases it's a legislator, uh, who is, you know, writing, uh, uh the laws, uh, that, uh, can set policies into motion. Um, but increasingly it is the end use customer. It's the, 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 the you or me Silas that is deciding whether or not to put a rooftop solar array on or whether or not to put a heat pump into place or whether or not to buy an EV and should it talk to my home, should it connect you know, uh, uh, to, to, to my house, a home battery system. Um, these are choices that are made outside of the regulatory and legislative paradigm. Um, you know, there are incentives in place, but there's really no law ever saying, you, know, you have to buy a solar panel, but if it's a 30% off sale or a half off sale or whatever it might be, uh, it's a strong encouragement. Um, you wanna make sure your technology is not ruled out uh, but if you think you've got the best gadget or the best, uh, you know, uh, widget, um, then, you know, by all means, focus on the outcomes. 
Okay, so this is interesting. I mean, I, I didn't necessarily plan a whole lot of questions in this area, but I think it's very fascinating. I want to continue going down this. So then if they are, you know, like you said, identifying the outcome, that's up to the innovator to identify, right? To identify, hey, we found an inefficiency that we can help. So we're going to try to get this into legislation so that we know, you know, somebody has to buy this outcome and we believe we can pro- provide it better than anyone else. So. Is there any kind of just to to shift a little bit from the seller's perspective? Is there anything going on on a regular basis where what your work is doing is helping identify the existing technologies or you know technologies where the TRL is high enough that utilities should be allocating a certain amount of budget to these things, and you're kind of just making those recommendations? I'm kind of curious if it can come from not just the innovator themselves. Hmm. Interesting. Um, the first thought that comes to mind, Silas, is in the world of energy efficiency programs, uh, ICF works with, uh, you know, 60 or so of the, uh, the leading utilities in the country to deliver uh, energy efficiency programs that are in many cases required uh, by public policy. Um, and so um, in these cases, um, you know, ICF as the program, you know, implementer administrator, uh, our job is to help those utilities figure out a portfolio of measures. Uh, and, you know, these are things like energy efficient lighting. Uh, it could be, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, building shell improvements. It could be appliance uh, upgrades, whatever it might be. Um, and to develop a portfolio that is cost effective, um, that, uh, you know, delivers on the outcome of energy efficiency uh, and the targets that might be set by uh, regulation or by le- legislation. Um, and when we do this, um, you know, we are essentially uh, assembling a portfolio of, uh, of actions that involve purchasing decisions. Um, you know, we're, we're buying this or uh, implementing that or, uh, you know, aggregating, you know, uh, whatever it might be. Um, so, you know, our job is to, to, to do this in a way that, you know, helps the utility achieve their goal. Um, and that goal is usually uh, something that's, you know, enshrined in policy or regulation. Um, there's usually some cost effectiveness tests. Uh, there's usually some, you know, some measures like that that help us stack the options. Um, but that's, you know, an example of sort of what we do as uh, uh, as ICF that helps uh, utilities uh, achieve goals like energy efficiency. Mm-hmm. They're going to be a big part of this energy transition. Mm-hmm. So what about, you know, somebody who's developing a new technology and they need to identify, you know, obviously you, you talked about the outcome. So if it's related to energy efficiency, that's relatively simple, right? Can you do this more efficiently? But if it's something maybe a little more uh, different, I'm try- I don't know if I can come off an example off the top of my head. But are there any instances or do you see this being possible going forward where companies who have an intention to make, you know, upgrades to the grid in some way with their technology, going directly to consumers first to demonstrate interest and product market fit before they pitch to the utilities? Do you, have you seen any instances of this where they either partner with an existing company selling to consumers or do it themselves in order to convince the utilities it's worth it? It's a good question, Silas. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, there's not many things that utilities buy and build on their side of the, the, the infrastructure equation that consumers have any say in or have any reason mm-hmm. to weigh in on. Um, it's, you know, usually big steel on the ground. We're talking substations mm-hmm. and transmission towers and power plants. Um, but mm-hmm. a really interesting interface point is the, the, the panel, the electrical panel. That's right behind the meter. Um, technically, that electrical panel, you know, belongs to the homeowner or the building owner. Um, but it is this critical interface point with, you know, what the, the utility's sort of last mile asset, which is the meter. Um, and I think of this because as we set about the task of electrifying, you know, everything we can easily, um, you know, these panels are going to become a critical kind of uh, juncture. Um, we're going to have to plug things into those panels. Um, we're going to have to upgrade a ton of these panels around the country because a lot of them were not, you know, specced to, you know, supply much less the power that we already use. Uh, uh, and uh, and it certainly would be, you know, too much to ask of them to deliver power for electric vehicles and for battery energy storage systems and whatnot. Um, and so there may be some, you know, interesting thing that can be done at that interface point uh, because, you know, the utilities. Um, they don't have a, a uh, it's not their asset, but they may have a role to play in terms of making that scale. 
um, uh, uh, providing additional services. Uh, maybe there's some sort of sort of a, you know some relationship, uh, a contractual relationship that you could establish, or maybe you know a utility um, uh, helps uh, you know defray the cost of a meter of an electrical panel upgrade uh, in exchange for some rights to uh, uh, you know um, you know uh, call on assets that are plugged into that for demand response. Um, I'm just spitballing here, but um, yeah. that's what comes to mind. No, that's interesting. I mean, I think I, I should probably think about this more before I ask some of this question again, right? So I can maybe have a better better question. But uh, I appreciate that. I think I, I appreciate you thinking off the cuff there. I, I want to, I do want to ask about funding. But I, one last thing while we're on this topic is we've talked a little bit about the IRA. And, you know, I'm in New York, so we have uh, local law 97. And I'm I'm just kind of curious, your analysis or you know what you've seen from a perspective of when it comes to regulation is the carrot or stick more effective at getting an outcome in the in, yeah, in regards to like better better climate change policy well we just recently um released a flagship report on uh, how far will you know the BIL and IRA uh, kind of joke around at the office uh, crazy uncle bill and ira um how far are they going to get us and uh, and our best guess is that We'll get some 27% or so by 2030 and some 52% or so uh, reductions um, uh, by 2050 um, out of those, you know, uh, pieces of, of legislation, uh, which are impressive. Um, you know, this is definitely bending the curve on our carbon trajectory. At the same time, it falls short of the 50% target that we sent for 2030 and, uh, you know, 100% uh, target that we're setting for 2050, uh, at least in this administration. So. Um, that's pretty consistent with what the others have found. Um, and those are, you know, largely carrot based, uh, programs. Um, what does it take to get that, you know, to, to, to meet the goal? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we took a look and, and identified kind of three big areas where we think, you know, action, uh, is, 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 uh, you know, could make that difference. Uh, the first is in electric vehicles. Electric vehicles are taking off, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're coming online, um, but from the two and a half million that we have today, uh, we're going to need to get to something like 250 million uh, by 2050. Um, that's like a hundred. Sorry, sorry, Michael. Can can you just? Uh, I missed that. Can you just go back to the first is? Oh, uh, the first is electric vehicles. Um, so electric vehicles are going to be a huge part of getting to our targets. Um, we're going to have to go from the two and a half million or so that we have today, uh, about a hundred times that, you know, 250 million or so uh, by 2050. Um, that's basically decarbonizing um, our transportation sector. And uh, that's going to mm. be a heavy lift. Um, it sounds daunting, 100x, um, but it's worth noting that our projections are that um, the IRA and BIL are going to get us to something like 93 million um, uh, by 2050 on their own. Mm. So really, it's you know, two and a half times x um, you know, from, from what we project. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, it's substantial, and we're going to have to do a lot more. We're going to have to really be aggressive about, um, you know, uh, battery manufacturing, about um, you know, charging uh, uh, infrastructure. Um, but we're going to have to double down on electric vehicles. The second area is on building decarbonization. Um, you know, we've got buildings uh, all over the country, and we're going to have to install something like a billion decarbonization measures. Um, you know, a measure is like retrofitting windows or, you know, uh, putting in a, a better lighting or whatever it might be. Uh, but we're going to need about a billion of these measures to be deployed um, across, you know, uh, the 150 some odd million uh, buildings that we have in this country. And so that's a that's a pretty big lift. That said, um, our projections are that we're already going to be in the, you know, mid 900 millions on this. So it's something like a 15 percent bump above what we're already projecting, a manageable number. But it does mean that we need to keep our eye on the ball and make sure that we don't slip behind. And the last is in clean energy. Uh, we need to decarbonize the grid. Um, uh, this administration has already set pretty aggressive targets on that. We also need to, um, you know, take fossil infrastructure uh, and replace it with, um, uh, you know, non-GHG infrastructure. Um, so we need to have uh, uh, clean sources like hydrogen and renewable natural gas um, do more uh, than uh, uh, methane gas is going to be uh, providing uh, by 2050. So these are kind of the three big, what we call super solutions, um, clean energy, uh, building decarbonization and vehicle electrification that we need to double down on, that we need to keep our eye on, that we need to make sure happen and, uh, and, and, and continue to invest in. The BIL and IRE are a great start, uh, but it is a start and the finish line is yeah. still a long way away. May, may need a stick at some point, right? <laughs> you know, the stick, the stick, 
carrot differentiation in my mind is um, less a question of technical outcome. You know, um, uh, the, the, the math um, is, you know, the math works in either case, um, but the technical merits don't always carry the day. Uh, in some cases, it's a political consideration. What is passable as opposed to what is technically achievable? Mm, okay, interesting. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I, I do want to get, there's two big areas I want to cover still. So on your kind of looking, when you look at more emerging technologies within, within climate tech, what is your understanding or kind of take on the, the funding landscape? I know that the big talk right now is that there's kind of this valley of death for the middle like growth stages until they get to the big stuff where they get acquired or get, you know, um, maybe they go for the IPO, but that kind of after series A, there's a bit of a desert there, right? From a funding perspective, you have any comments on the broader funding landscape, whether that has to do with the stage or maybe, you know, debt funding or PE coming in and doing different project financing things across emerging climate technologies? It's a great question. I, I, I lived through sort of climate tech 1.0 or clean tech 1.0 um, uh, with Solar Spring Networks, where I spent uh, a good chunk of my career. Um, that was uh, an experience that taught me that, you know, one, hardware is hard. Um, you know, we used to joke, we'd say hardware sucks. Um, but also, it's worth noting that, you know, when it comes to the energy transition, you can't do it just with software. Um, hardware is an essential ingredient. Um, I think my sense is that um, you know the, the the venture capital landscape or the, or the overall capital landscape has matured and understands that a hardware is hard, but also hardware is necessary, and that this is not a five-year game, maybe even not a ten-year game, but we need to be you know thinking in terms of patient capital. Um, this is um, not just a financial return. We're not just trying to get a ten x on you know the unicorns, um, but we're also thinking in terms of um, the impact that we make. Uh, and I find this happening in conversations that I have with folks that respond to open door climate and have these conversations, which is they're not necessarily just looking for where can I make the most money? They're also thinking about where can I make the most impact? Uh, and I see, um, you know, the capital landscape factoring that in. Of course, they need to make a return on their investments. Uh, but the, the, you know, the, the patience that they're showing um, and, uh, and, and the, the maturity that they're bringing in, I think, um, you know, is reflected in, in how these things are coming together. No one's looking at this as a get-rich-quick scheme as much anymore. Um, Moore's Law doesn't apply necessarily the same way when it comes to sort of uh, the, the big capital infrastructure that we're going to need to build to re, you know, reinvent and, 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 and reimagine the basic energy underpinnings of our economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you see the, I believe the biggest example of this would be breakthrough energy, right, with their longer-term horizon. And I think that you know, from, from everything I've seen, I've talked to a lot of funds and they all seem to still have that seven-year horizon, right, for the VC side. And I believe that they are going to have to be more patient, right, because it's better to be realistic on the outcomes. Uh, it's obviously difficult when you have a lot of emerging managers to trying to raise their, raise their funds, right? LPs are uh, a little bit more skeptical at this point. But, um, okay, that's interesting. No, I, appreciate, I appreciate that insight. Um, on the... You know, on the side of founders, so I want to get into ideas in a second, but on the side of founders, you know, if somebody who's building in climate right now, you know, given all the different things you see, I'd be really curious to know your top piece of pieces of advice when it comes to anything in, in founding, whether that's finding product market fit, doing fundraising, uh, working on go to market, identifying talent, just anything that you think are the most important things for companies and, and founders to be considerate of. You mentioned the war for talent. Um, I can, you know, unequivocally say that that war is real. Um, uh, there, there, there are a lot of choices today for people who are interested in getting involved uh, in this work, and um, and and you've got to fight to get their attention. You've got to fight to get them on board. Um, I mentioned before, you know, how ICF is this mission-driven kind of purpose-rich uh, organization. Um, I think that that, you know, should be on the radar screen of founders. Um, you know, people aren't necessarily just coming for the options. Uh, they're, uh, they're also coming for the mission. Um, and I think that authenticity, you know, people know when, if you're doing something because you believe in it, because you really think this is going to be a meaningful and significant contribution uh, to the energy transition, that this is going to help us get to where we need to get faster, better. Um, or if you're doing it because it's just a, a, a cool science problem that you solved. Or because you're really out to make you know a gajillion dollars as fast as you can, um, you know people know 
people can smell that and detect that and people will respond to that. So um, I would say, you know, uh, make sure that you've got not just the story right, but that it's coming from the right place. Um, and, uh, and if it's not, um, you know, people will know. Um, in terms of, you know, how to build a company, um, I would say there's so many um, technical problems that still need to be solved uh, uh, in, in this energy transition. I would say don't necessarily be drawn to um, what is the problem that you're trying to solve only, um, but it's also the story that you tell. Um, there are, um, you know, the grid, for example, uh, an area that I know best is, is, is really, really well built. I mean, it's the ultimate machine. It's this enormously complicated um, uh, machine that has basically, you know, worked perfectly uh, to, to get us to where we're at. Um, anyone coming in thinking that, yes, I can rewire this whole thing and make it work better overnight um, is bringing in a level of hubris that I think uh, is going to alienate uh, the, the, the men and women who have got us, gotten this grid to where it is. Um, you know, there's a ton of work that's gotten into keeping the lights on that goes into keeping the lights on. And so to come in and say, you know, you guys are doing it wrong. Let me fix that. Um, I think uh, we'll get you into hot water fast. I've seen it happen uh, and, uh, and I continue to see it happen. So, um, you know, I have enormous admiration and respect for the folks who run the grid. Um, and there are folks who don't always have an appreciation uh, in the same way that I think that they deserve. So um, that, that would be my other piece of advice. Interesting. I, I like that. So that's quite interesting. I, I, you know, just to go back a little bit on the talent piece, obviously it's my day job, so I'm, I'm a little bit partial, but I think it's interesting you say this because a lot of the candidates I talk to who are asking for advice are always like, oh, I'm looking at this or that company. I won't say wh who, which companies, but there's like a handful of them that they all want to apply to. And I'm like, all right, you realize that you are, you know, we talked about this earlier, you're one of a thousand people applying to that in particular job and think about the broader organization. There are so many other companies. You just need to get a little bit deeper than a Google search, right? You can't just be going with the big <laughs> yeah. ones. And it's partially an issue on the founder side, right? There is not a lot of storytelling or marketing going on, unfortunately, um, in the climate space. And I think that it really, you know, that is important because there are people, there are plenty of people I can say that, that want a job in climate, but they just need to be shown the way to, to your company, right? So that, that's interesting. I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, Silas, can I share a, a little tip, secret trick that I, I, I've used myself uh, yeah, that, I, that I think might be relevant for your listeners? Um, I think you're totally right in, in the sense that, you know, just because you haven't heard of them doesn't mean that they're not uh, a company worth checking out or an organization joining. Um, the how do you find them is, you know, hard, right? Um, and one of the things that I'm always impressed by when I, I spend a lot of time on the conference circuit um, is when uh, someone um, has shown up. Uh, sometimes they talk their way in. Sometimes they pay their way in. Sometimes they just kind of like walk themselves in um, at a conference and they have the courage to get up to the mic and ask that first question. And if you can do that in a way that um, shows why you're interested in, you know, whoever you're asking the question to. So first, you know, go to a conference, uh, you know, figure out a way in, um, get to the mic, ask a question of somebody who's impressed you, someone who seems to be working on something that's going to be meaningful and they're working on it for the right reasons. And ask them a question that reveals that you've got the level of interest, you've got the kind of commitment, you've got the giddy up. Uh, to, to, to possibly be a member of their team. That goes such a long way. Um, you know, everyone on the panel probably had to either pay their way or earn their way onto that stage. The person who steps up to the mic, uh, that's, that's the freebie. Go out and get it. This is, this is interesting. Yeah, there was somebody who asked a question during Climate Week that I was like super impressed by them. And I was like, I got to be in touch with that, that startup because Actually, the question was a, a terrible question, but like he he did a job, good job of like explaining who he was, and then you know, but the point being, like he did it right, and it was it was it was memorable. So that that's actually really a really great hack. Um, thanks for sharing that. I hadn't hadn't thought of that one. Um, cool. So you know, bro, we're running out of time here. Just to get to the, the my favorite part, the the most juicy part of the show. When you look across the landscape of opportunities to you know solve climate change. What are the areas that you are either most bullish on or the particular ideas that you would say, hey, you know, this is something I thought about, you know, not sure if it's perfect, but this is some some opportunities I see to build in climate. I'll give two answers. Um, first is I think we're 
we have, like I mentioned before, a, a fairly decent directional sense of how to get a good way down the road. And a lot of it is technology, a lot of it is execution, a lot of it is investment. Those are going to need to be complemented, I think, by an awareness of equity and justice and fairness, as well as a sensitivity towards storytelling uh, and a, you know, a, a skill in narrative. Um, it's one thing to say, this is the widget we need to install, we're going to do it. It's another thing to bring people on board in communities, um, in organizations, in neighborhoods, um, to understand you know, why it's good for them, why they should be you know, a part of this story, how they fit in. And so I would say uh, the first is, uh, you know, um, on the parts that we have directional sense, let's not forget that we need to focus on the people part of the equation, not just on the, 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 the hardware side of the equation, software and hardware, in other words. The second is that to complement sort of the areas where we have a directional sense of what we need to do, at least, um, there are a number of sectors that we call hard to abate, um, places where we just we're going to have to invent stuff. Uh, we we don't know how we're going to decarbonize decarbonize those parts of our economy of our system, um, and those are long runway kind of challenges. And so, um, some people might look at that and say, "Well, that's not going to be you know uh, um, you know the seven year exit that uh, that I you know want." So I'm going to ignore it. Um, I look at that and I think, "Well, you know, when I worked at Silver Spring Networks, we always had this saying that you know." 80% of the costs of the networks that we build are driven by the last 20% of consumers that we're trying to connect. Um, I have a belief that um, the, the impact, the benefits delivered by that last 20 or so percent that are hard to abate parts of our economy um, are going to be really meaningful uh, opportunities uh, that you know, might not be obviously attractive uh, uh, right now. Uh, I'm talking about cement, steel, aviation, chemicals. Um, you know, uh, fertilizer, like these are, these are difficult problems that we need to solve uh, because even if we get 80% of the way down the road and then hit a roadblock, um, you know, that last bit, uh, we're going to have to solve it. Otherwise it's going to solve for us. Yeah, that's interesting. And no, I appreciate that. I think it is, um, it's my favorite. I love the, the hard to abate stuff because that's the like, reason I got interested in climate was seeing people, especially, you know, concrete uh, that's capturing carbon. It's about the same price, and it's better for the environment. So it's like, you know, why would why would anybody be against these things? And I, I, that's why I'm most fascinated because it's kind of the reindustrialization of of a uh, of the world, right? Or I, specifically in in regards to America. But um, I got, I think I got time for one last one here. Is are there any opportunities for people who are not scientists? They're not engineers, right? They're maybe non technical people, but they really want to be involved in climate. You know, they're not going to be the kind of person who has time to go back to school and learn. Are there any sweaty, I usually call them sweaty startup opportunities or kind of service-based businesses that you see aside from consulting for people to get into climate and, you know, build the kind of businesses and opportunities there? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm a big believer in community action agencies. Um, these are organizations that were brought in, you know, into being in the area, era of the Great Society back in the 60s. Community action agencies, um, you know, serve those kind of underserved parts of our communities. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an, uh, a, a part of the world where um, if you can bring along community action agencies to become active participants in the energy transition, um, to understand, help them to understand and help their constituents to understand uh, that the impacts that we're already feeling from climate, um, it's not just them thinking that their their neighborhoods are getting hotter than everyone else's. Um, and, uh, and, and it's not just, um, you know, uh, it should, their, their response, their engagement should be proportional uh, to, to how, how much harder, uh, you know, floods and fires and heat are hitting them. Um, and they don't always have the resources. They don't always have sort of the, uh, the, the bandwidth. Um, and often people, you know, just don't invite them uh, to the conversations that they need to be a part of. Um, I don't know if this is, you know, a terribly profitable opportunity, but I do know that it is a awfully meaningful one uh, to engage, um, you know, uh, sort of underserved communities in the energy transition. Um, there's a lot of places that are kind of, you know, unsung heroes. Um, they're not sexy, uh, but, you know, school buses, electric school buses. Um, you know, there is one that's kind of a slam dunk. Um, less diesel exhaust being inhaled by kids that are waiting for the school bus. And those buses can be demand response when they're not busy dropping off and picking up kids. Um, maybe it's not, you know, uh, as cool as a Tesla, uh, but I would argue that, you know, the impact is uh, right up there, if not greater. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, if you see everyone running towards a bandwagon, look the other way. There's something else there. Yeah, there's opportunities, especially when people's uh, attention is focused in the wrong way. And there's just one last comment I wanted to make, which I think I've tried to say many times in the show, but I have been disappointed at how many climate tech companies that are building to solve for these challenges are really not building in a responsible and sustainable way from the people perspective, right? They're not doing these things in a, in a way that's inclusive and in many times just irresponsible with massive growth and then layoffs, right? Just the kind of the old tech way, the things we don't want to be doing. So, you know, I don't know if you have any comments there, but final thoughts, you know, you want to close us off with where people can reach you. What's the call to action? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, the call to action is that everyone can play a role uh, because we are all part of the problem and we can all be part of the solution. Um, part of it is just, you know, being more aware of what we do on an individual personal basis. Uh, part of it is finding opportunities to engage professionally uh, in, in, in the work. Um, but part of it is just, you know, um, every part of the energy transition involves energy. We use energy in everything that we do every day. Um, it could be as small as, you know, uh, signing a petition, writing a letter, uh, casting a vote. Um, these are all ways that we can exercise the power that we have to influence this transition that's underway. Um, it can happen faster. It can also happen slower. Um, it's up to us. Um, when it comes to, you know, ICF, uh, you know, the climate center that I'm leading, um, you know, we're issuing thought leadership. Um, we hope that it's relevant, uh, not just to the technocrats uh, and, and, and the folks who are, you know, the, 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 the energy and energerati, uh, if you will, <laughs> um, but also to just, you know, uh, uh, folks who are, you know, interested, um, curious, uh, want to learn. Uh, we all have so much to learn. That's the best part of my job. I'm learning every day uh, from, you know, the folks at ICF and the folks that, you know, that we engage with as clients and partners. So um, the energy transition, we are making this up as we're going. So every, you know, everyone has something to contribute because the script is unwritten. The story is untold. This is our story to write. Damn, that's nice. That's a nice way to end. I, re- I like that. So thanks so much for coming on, Mike. I appreciate this. Thanks, Silas. It's been a ton of fun.